makeup and I, I, I wow yeah that's quite an influence I've yeah <laughs> yeah I mean stuff's good it is what you know tell the truth and that's it that's a revolutionary act these days right <laughs> ready Okay, ladies and gentlemen, we are rolling into another episode of The Candace Owens Show, and I would like to talk to you all about a video that I just saw circulating on the internet. It is remarkable, and everyone should be paying attention. Um, it was a couple, a Caucasian couple that was sitting to eat in Washington, D.C., and a mob of Black Lives Matter activists peaceful Black Lives Matter activists decided to storm the restaurant and demand that people in the restaurant raise their fists in the air um, and give the Black Power salute. Now, this young Caucasian couple decided that they were not going to raise their fists in the air and give a Black Power salute. And so the woman and the mob proceeded to scream at them, yelling obscenities at them, until finally they left. What I saw looked familiar to me. It looked like the images that I saw when I was learning about the civil rights era, when I was learning about white people who would descend on black people that were peacefully eating and scream obscenities at them because of the color of their skin. So what has changed really in America? Have we transported back to um, the time of racial unrest, this time uh, with black Americans as the aggressors? What is, uh, this is all taking shape and what is at the root of it, I think we would all agree, would be the Black Lives Matter movement. I have been very vocal in my belief that Black Lives Matter is a hate group. There is nothing nice about Black Lives Matter. They are happy to use violent tactics. They are happy to use scare tactics. They are happy to burn. They are happy to riot. They are happy to loot to accomplish their goals. And I'm not quite sure what their goals are. Now, when I first established my own personal belief system on the Black Lives Matter movement, um, it was definitely considered controversial. I am black, by the way. Of course, I believe that black lives matter. I believe all lives matter. And there was um, really a, a lot of information and data that was put together in a few pieces on the Internet, as well as in a, a book by my next guest, who I am so excited to have and to speak to about police brutality um, and the myth of police brutality. Ladies and gentlemen, I am proud to welcome to my show Heather McDonald. <laughs> Heather is a fellow at the Manhattan Institute and the author of the book War on Cops. Heather. Welcome to the Candace Owens Show. It's such an honor, Candace. I'm 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 privileged to be with you, and I look forward to this conversation. Um, so you are an academic, a true ap academic, and I kind of I say a true academic because there are a lot of people who are not academic who uh, pose as academics and put out these ridiculous theses that have sort of added to these obscured humanities that we're seeing today. Um, and you did something very bold and very courageous a few years ago. You told the truth about police brutality. Um, and I wanna just talk to you about what made you focus on this topic. Um, you see the world going crazy. The narrative is that black people like myself are just walking down the street doing the right thing and a police officer turns and boom, shoots us. Um, what, what made you get interested in that? Well, it was a very specific moment in New York City, Candace. New York had been turned around by Mayor Rudolph Giuliani, one of the most visionary mayors that the city has ever had. He took on the welfare industrial complex, and most importantly, he brought crime down in a way that nobody had predicted that it was possible by making the police accountable, holding them accountable for, for saving lives, uh, and asking them to care about public order, be proactive. And, and this had brought a, a renaissance to New York City that was completely unforeseen. 
the New York Times and the media detested Giuliani because he was destroying one liberal shibboleth after another. And they were looking for any opportunity to take him down. In 1999, there was a very horrible, one of these stomach-churning police shootings of Amadou Diallo, a West Ghanaian immigrant, who was uh, trying to get in his apartment in the Soundview section of the Bronx. And the police were looking for a robber, and, or a rapist, rather. And they thought that Diallo, who was still outside the vestibule, looked like that rapist. And they stopped him, asked a few questions. He didn't understand them. He reached for his wallet and they shot him the infamous 41 times. This provoked weeks of celebrity protests. The Times went into overdrive. They were running three and a half articles a day claiming that the Diallo shooting was emblematic of the New York Police Department. That the, the police department had, yes, brought crime down. They had done so on the backs of black people, ignoring the fact that it was black lives that were being saved by this unprecedented crime drop. And so they were claiming that this was the way that NYPD operated. Well, I had by then a rule of thumb that if the New York Times says it, don't believe it. And so this is a very clear message. Diallo equals the New York Police Department. So I went out to the Bronx and I talked to people and I said, are the police brutalizing you? What do you think about the police? And what I heard from people again and again, we want more cops, we're terrified of the people engaged in drive-by shootings, the police treat we with, with respect. This was not just elderly females, of course it was them. It was young black males who would say, I don't get involved in trouble. Uh, I've not had encounters with the police. I looked into the numbers as well, and I found that police shootings were at their lowest level in decades. The year that Amadou Diallo was shot, there were 11 people shot fatally by the police. That is minuscule compared to the population numbers. And so at that point, I became very interested in this narrative, and I realized that the cops were living under a a narrative of lies unlike any other profession, uh, and that they were motivated by the desire to help people, and yet it became and yet and yet they were the 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 story told about them was the exact opposite. This was at the height of the driving while black syndrome, uh, that narrative which turned also to be false, and so it became somewhat of a moral crusade for me because. It simply was unfair that people were having to go to work each day with a presumption against them that they could not falsify, which was that they were all racist. So right. from then on, it's it's something, an interest I've had. And sadly, the narrative has just become more and more uh, high volume and more and more lethal. Above all, uh, it the narrative of racist cops takes black lives. It's very simple. Right. And I'm going to ask you a, a rather complicated question. Why? What, what does the New York Times gain by perpetuating a narrative that they know is not true? What do they gain by causing this disruption, by causing this unrest? Why are we seeing right now especially just the height of this false narrative being perpetuated throughout the entire media? 
You know, I think it is as much simply an ideological commitment as it is to any kind of, I know you're not saying literally financial gain, but I think that the left now, its identity is formed on the belief that they are fighting against a racist America. Mm -hmm. And that gives them significance, it gives them power, it gives them righteousness. And I think they're quite sincere in that belief. Uh, so they think that they're on a, a their own moral crusade uh, to save black people. There's obviously a hell of a lot of condescension and and paternalism in, involved in that. Uh, but so for them, it's status and self-image. Uh, and, and it's part of a narrative that is based on hatred, I think, hatred of America, hatred of Western civilization. And it is, at this point, taking us to the precipice of very serious anarchy and, and possibly civil war. I mean, the video that you spoke about, our founders, the great political thinkers of the 17th and 18th century, understood that there is a human passion, a lust for violence, and that it has to be restrained by expectations of order and consequences for for behavior, for bad behavior. Now, people have been set free to engage in the most sadistic behavior of just a sheer power play. The founders understood that power is, is enthralling, it's inebriating, and we've allowed that loose. And getting it back, Candace, is going to be very, very difficult. Mm. You know what? When you say we have allowed that loose, so I've given a lot of thought to this, and I had read a book that was written by Shelby Steele called White Guilt. Mm -hmm. And I am now convinced that the fault is entirely on white people. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll take there it. We you know, know, I'm going to go ahead guilty, and blame right? white people um, so we're, we're for, guilty, yeah. for allowing their guilt mm -hmm. to manifest as this, right? To allow for being feeling so guilty. I won't. I cannot forget during the George Floyd protests um, when they were rioting and they were looting Target. And then Target came out and issued a statement saying that they understood. Yeah. They understood why the TVs were being t torn out of their stores and things things were being taken away. Like, we deserve this yeah. because we are a corporate company that is run by white people and we're happy to have this happen. And I just went, oh, my goodness. When you get to a point in a society where you no longer call wrong wrong and right right, you can't distinguish between right and wrong. And I sort of liken it to – uh, if you're in a store and you see a toddler, right, and, and the toddler wants something, let's, let's say it's a lollipop, and the toddler starts screaming and starts throwing down things on the counter and lays out on the floor, and you see a parent. Imagine yeah. seeing a parent that just said, that's absolutely fine. Right. That's the right way to get what you want. Here's the lollipop that you wanted. If I saw that, I'd think the parent was absolutely insane for condoning such behavior. Mm -hmm. And and although I, I, I can, of course, accept the fact that right now you, you have tons of black Americans, not all, but you have a lot of black Americans who are taking advantage and realizing that you, you're having the adults of society, the politicians, you know, the, the police, even some police department heads, right, who are saying that this behavior is okay. The corporations, this behavior is okay. Yeah. What are they going to do? But then keep saying, sure. I'm going to keep rioting and right. I'm going to keep looting because right. society is saying it's okay. Yeah. That's a manifestation of white guilt. Absolutely. It's fun. I mean, rioting is fun. The idea that, oh, we do this in sorrow at racial injustice. Give me a break. No, whites are... 
they were paternalistic during Jim Crow and segregation, and they're just as paternalistic now. The one thing they seem to have not been able to do is say, we believe that blacks are equal and that we are going to have the same expectations uh, for law abidingness as we would for our own children or for our own neighbors. Uh, instead, it's somehow, oh, this is what black people do. And the irony is with the police, of course we have a a horrible history of the police in this country. They were absolute handmaidens to segregation and mm -hmm. slavery. Brutality was very real. Uh, and the racist attitude that the, the police used to have towards black crime was to ignore it mm -hmm. because that's just what blacks do. And so they wouldn't deploy in, in minority neighborhoods and, and the crime rates have always been higher. Uh, now, Policing is data-driven. Race has nothing to do with it. It goes where people are being victimized to save lives. It turns out that if you're going to save lives, you're going to disproportionately be saving black lives. And the police are taking black life seriously and trying to save it. Mm. And they're not being racist. It is, it is the, the elite whites who think that it's somehow helpful to... to to say riding is fine. I mean, we've we've recently been through the the uh, Democratic National Convention. I still don't think they said one word about it. How we have a nation where we can't even agree that looting is wrong. Right. I ask myself, well, what do we? Is there anything we agree on? We don't agree that there are biological males and biological females. I don't even. I can't. I keep having to sort of push back deeper and deeper to where we start to divide. And at this point, we're dividing on some of the most fundamental requirements of a civilized society, right. which is respect for life and for property. Mm -hmm. Respect for property is respect for human life because human beings have created that store. They have created that merchandise. You destroy their livelihood. You are destroying them. What year did you publish War on Cops? Uh, that was 2016. Yeah, 2016, right at the height of sort of the Black Lives yep. Matter early the protesting. The first version of it. Right. And and so I, I have even seen now that there has already been it, – it's morphed into something else, the Black Lives Matter movement. So when you publish the book, the narrative seemed to be that in uh, a correspondence with a police officer, an unarmed black person would be gunned down simply on the basis of being black, mm -hmm. right? Now we seem to have updated it. And now the narrative is, okay, even if the black person is being violent, even if he is armed, even if he's beating the police officer, right? Like we saw in the Rayshard Brooks where he grabbed the uh, taser, taser yeah. and fired at the police officer. Uh, we saw re recently with the, is it Jacob Blake, Jason Blake? The Jacob Blake. Jacob Blake case that uh, he got into a physical altercation on the ground and was beating the police officer before. Did you see the full tape? They've just released the, the, the full thing before he ran around to his car. Now we're getting to the point that no matter what a black person does, mm -hmm. a police officer has no right to defend himself under mm -hmm. any circumstances. Mm -hmm. They said in in the case of Rashard Brooks, they should have just let him go. He should have just been able to run run off with a police weapon. It is considered a weapon, a taser, yeah. and be able to run in. Because, you know, I am crazy. I, I thought that the role of the police officer was to make sure that the rest of the community would be protected from criminals. So the idea of allowing a criminal to run off armed into society, right, and, and what they think is going to happen thereafter, I don't know. The police officer is going to then knock on his door later and say, hey, I know you weren't ready to be arrested then, but maybe come with us now and, and somehow the situation is going to be absolved. I mean, 
This is such lunacy. It's hard to wrap your head around. What they're basically saying is under no circumstances should a black person have to capitulate to police officers. Should they have to, you know, be respectful, be obedient, have to listen to anything. They should be able to spit, mock, beat, grab a weapon and fire the police officers and walk away unscathed. Yeah. How did we get from where we were in 2016 so quickly to where we are at right now in 2020 in terms of the Black Lives Matter narrative? Well, I would say we've had another four years of poisonous academic ideology uh, that has been pumped into the body politic that says that white civilization, that it's deemed white as opposed to simply our civilization, is the font of all evil, uh, that whites are the font of all evil. And people have gone into corporations that have come out of the universities having been taught about toxic masculinity, white privilege. Uh, They've been taught to hate the greatest works of Western literature. They've been taught to hate each other, to immediately categorize themselves ideally as oppressed and victims. Or if you're not, you're the oppressor. You can only escape being an oppressor if you're an ally Mm -hmm. of these these unsafe females on a college campus or underrepresented minorities. Give me a break. It is such a delusion. It is so nauseatingly narcissistic. So I would say that that we keep building up, building, but these people are in the corporations, they're in the media, they're in, they're in Google, they're in the big tech. Uh, and so that narrative has been building. And yes, you're absolutely right. The Criminal justice research has known for decades that the biggest predictor of officer behavior is civilian behavior. Officers are reactive. If if a civilian is not complying with a lawful command, an officer is going to ratchet up his own use of force until he gets compliance. He's, he's entitled to get compliance from a suspect. If the suspect continues resisting, the officer is going to uh, escalate his use of force until ultimately, sadly, sometimes lethal force, which is a minute, a minute fraction mm. of all the officer-civilian interactions. Right now, we are, as you say, sending the message that you should be able to assault officers, resist arrest. We could, and there's about a thousand fatal police shootings a year. About 50% of those are white, about a quarter of those are black. It turns out that when you take violent crime into account, whites are about three times more likely to be fatally shot uh, than blacks are. But we could bring those fatal police shootings down to a fraction if everybody complied Mm. with officer arrest. One simple rule, don't resist arrest, you won't get shot, it's very simple. Yeah, ideally, don't commit crime. <laughs> yeah, right. Because a lot of the reason that people are resisting arrest is because they're being arrested in the first place. Right. Not always. Not always. And there are some bad shootings. But by and large, the police, we are blaming the messenger. The real problem is black crime. Mm-hmm. I hate to say it, but that is the real problem. Well, you're telling the truth, and that makes you a racist, an and avowed racist. <laughs> why doesn't it matter that since uh, George Floyd, three dozen children have been killed, about 98% of them black. We've lost a one-year-old in New York. We've lost a one-year-old, a three-year-old, and a seven-year-old in Chicago. We've lost a four-year-old in Kansas City, an eight-year-old in Birmingham, and and uh, uh, 
where someplace and an, an 11 11 year old in DC why doesn't that matter these are kids that have been shot at barbecues they've been shot sleeping in their beds they've been shot in their front yards when we say the cops have to back off and and we allow this type of ruthless uncontrolled behavior it is black kids who suffer Candace the racism of this country you know I'm so sick of the liberal press. If three dozen white children had been killed, there would be a revolution. Mm -hmm. The press doesn't give a damn about black lives. It doesn't give a damn. It doesn't give a damn about black children. It only gives a damn if a black person is shot by a cop. Right, right. And that is a fraction of all the blacks who've been killed. Last year, according to the Washington Post, there were nine unarmed blacks who were shot. And by the way, you can be unarmed and still be very violent. You can be grabbing the officer's gun. Mm -hmm. You can be you can be beating him with his own equipment and the post is going to classify you as unarmed. Mm -hmm. Those 9 represent 0.1% of all blacks who were killed last year. There were probably we're going to probably see about 7300 blacks. 0.1%. The cops are not the problem. The problem is crime. And and the media only cares if it's white kids that are being killed. Look at they all freak out at Newton, Connecticut. Yes, terrible. There is a Newton, Connecticut, periodically, cumulatively, several times a year in the black community. And the press turns its eyes away because it is not willing to talk about black on black crime. Right, right. And and you know, in my opinion, when I think about it, I think that white guilt is a form of systemic oppression. Mm -hmm. When you talk about the fact that it's in the academia, when you talk about the fact that it's in the media and and sort of suppressing the truth, suppressing the facts because it, it goes against this narrative right. of white man bad, black people victims, right. right? That's a form of systemic oppression because what what happens is inevitably is that it harms black communities. It right. harms black people first and foremost. Right. And you know, what you have when you replace um, hard academics, people learning about data sets, people learning about engineering, people learning about scientism, instead of replacing those courses with the, with with these soft courses like you know feminism 101, right, where you're just learning about how to hate men or right. African American studies, which is not about the history of black people, it's about how to hate black, how to hate white people, right. right? That's what we're sort of seeing. This is this is sort of the turn that that academics has taken altogether, and and you're creating these people that become social justice warriors and it's all based on feeling none of it is based on fact and it invariably harms black americans first and foremost yeah. and when i see that reaction talking about toddlers screaming that reaction why do toddlers scream and yell and try to get what they want because toddlers are ignorant mm -hmm. toddlers don't have any real knowledge toddlers don't have any real data they have all feelings like little kids are all feelings and they know if they don't get that popsicle uh their whole world's going to end because their 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 world is so short-sighted without knowledge and the older you get the more knowledge you acquire and you move away from that when I then look into uh, look at the media and I see black Americans acting like that, mm -hmm. that's what I see. I see ignorance. I see a media that is turning black Americans into toddlers, right. into believing that the way to get what they want is to kick and to scream and to keep rewarding that behavior. Um, and and it breaks my heart yep. And I cause, because I don't know where we go from here. I know. It's very simple to unravel a society. It's much more complicated to bring it back together. I know. Single expectations and high expectations. Again, it is so condescending to say, we expect you to loot. You know, and this has been around for a long time. It's the right ideology. The, it, I, it, it seems to be the case. Uh, 
and now we have Antifa, but but blacks have felt entitled to loot because the the media and the elites say this is justice and we deserve it and we don't have any right to have expectations of of lawfulness in our cities mm -hmm. and of course you have low expectations people are going to live down to the low expectations we've been defining deviancy down for a long time one has to ask do you not believe that blacks can live up to bourgeois norms and so now we've been i mean it's extraordinary the the type of of uh, calumny that is directed against civilized norms. We had the, the, the scandal this summer with the Smithsonian's Black History Museum saying with its little list of white values, things like timeliness, rationality, hard work, mm -hmm. uh, expectations of, of deferred gratification. They finally took that list down the spirit is out there, but you know that list is actually not very surprising. I started writing about the corporate diversity consulting industry in the 1990s, uh, which was the, one of the early scams about white guilt and lowered expectations for blacks. Back then, uh, Roosevelt Thomas was going around telling these corporate CEOs, well, just don't think that black should be on time because that's a white value. Oh, stop. Oh, give me a break. Oh, stop. Is that is that for real? Oh, yes. This has been around since the 90s. Oh, my goodness. Uh, so, so none of this is new. You know, people have been warning about this for a long time, and people turn their eyes away. They think, oh, it's just cute. Like, academics is silly. The people will will uh, join the real world and the hard America, and they'll all, they'll all realize that, no, we have to be self-controlled and disciplined and competitive doesn't work that way. Bad right. ideas, you have to take them on directly. You mm. cannot turn your eyes away from them. And the stuff that's been coming out of the academy for the last four or five decades is really poisonous. And it's no, there's nothing more poisonous than the whole race ideology. Right. And I'm going to ask you a tough question. Who is more at fault? Um, the white people for allowing it. So it, in that video that we saw at the restaurant, there was a white couple next to them, and the black man raises his fist in solidarity and actually does it. He actually does a black power symbol. Mm -hmm. Or black Americans for taking advantage and rioting and looting in response. Who who is more at fault here in this in this dynamic? <laughs> it's hard. It's a hard, 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 hard question. Yeah, I mean, one could just say to punt and say symbiosis. They're they're absolutely mutually <laughs> codependent on one another. You know, it's like in academia, you have the diversity bureaucrats. And the, the 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 nauseatingly narcissistic students who act out their little psychodramas of oppression, they both need each other. Mm -hmm. And it's the same thing here. The whites need this for their sense of righteousness because they know that they are the only non-bigots. Uh, the rest of the, the the Trump deplorables, you know, they're they're sitting over a nation of 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 rednecks. And of course, they they have their own penitence, you know, mm -hmm. as we saw with the CEOs that you mentioned. With my God, anti-racism, you know, we we the reason we have not have thirteen percent black uh, representation at Google is because we must be discriminating against uh, all those qualified black engineers. No, I'm sorry, they're just not in the pipeline. Right. Thanks again to the lowered expectations, and sadly, the black ghetto culture of anti-acting white. Right, so, 100%. You know, Amen. That, that, is, that is something that is relatively autochthonous, I think, that, mm -hmm. that is, you know, grows out of that culture. Uh, so so the whites are, are enabling blacks and vice versa. And, uh, but I guess you could say that ultimately it's the parent that's in your, in your toddler analogy, uh, the toddler, if he has no high expectations, he's just going to act that way. Who, who can, 
blame him, you know. So so maybe ultimately, as much guilt. as we believe, <laughs> on the other hand, we don't want to absolve somebody from responsibility. You don't, but you don't. But when you allow it, it's it's. I mean, it is so hard because I do believe, you know, at your core, the question that we're asking really are: Are human beings? Do we naturally tread towards evil or good? Mm -hmm. Right. And the answer is evil. Right. When you see right. a toddler, their right. instincts are. Be a brat, get what you want, and then the parents are there and to say, this is not right, this is what's wrong, and then they grow into these amazing human beings, hopefully, yep. assuming the parent is not sitting there saying, yes, you're right, be vengeful, hit your brother, get what you want, right? So we now have a society where they're being told from start to finish. It's not like this starts when they're an adult right. and a Black Lives Matter protest happens. This starts in school. You know, you, they're, they're handing out uh, white privilege pamphlets in first right. grade. Right. Understand your white guilt. Here is your safe space. This is, uh, I, I, I always uh, tell this story, uh, but just so you know, I, I used to babysit for a family on the Upper West Side, their kids go to some elite uh, private school um, and $50,000 a year high school we're talking about. And uh, they had to, during um, uh, February, during Black History Month, all go to the auditorium and just allow black people to yell at them mm -hmm. about what they don't understand, what it's like, what your white privilege does to me. I just can't imagine this type of an assembly when I was growing up in school of being like, you get on stage and find a white person to yell at. Really? Right? Yes. So if this is going on today and you know that it's starting from the Second, they learn to read. They're getting these pamphlets and they're learning about what's wrong with them being white. And then it carries all the way on up. You're never, it, 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 you're never breaking the toddler spell. Mm -hmm. So it's like, how can, when you've never been told right from wrong and the media sanctions it and the politicians sanction it right. and the mayors come out and say, I understand right. and we should de you know, defund the police. How can you blame someone for what ultimately amounts to a societal, uh, a society that sanctions ignorance? Right. from start to finish. They would have to have either an internal intuition about the value mm -hmm. of self-discipline and deferred gratification and thinking about other people, or they'd have to f have found a voice like yours. And what happens to voices there. like mine and yours? Right, exactly. I mean, I remember reading, <laughs> I mean, it's fun. It's fun to Google you, by the way. Google me, Google you, right? You see what, what the Google does and puts the yeah. top. And I mean, you were so out early in front of this narrative. And that takes bravery mm -hmm. to say, you know what? I'm just going to tell you the facts. And it takes bravery. I've, I've, I have encountered so few people, even today in this space, conservatives are afraid to tell the truth. Yeah. They'd rather someone like me go out and say it because they're scared to tell the truth. For you to, to even hit on what you just said i hate to say it but black ghetto culture of saying acting white mm -hmm. one of the most important things we should be talking about today right and not just me i shouldn't be allowed to say this because i'm black you should be allowed to say it because it's true mm -hmm. right i don't care what color what color you are right. you know i know what you're talking about when you say black ghetto culture you know you know exactly what you're talking about when you say we sanction this through our music i mean acting white speaking proper english mm -hmm. right what kind of message, what kind of signal does that send to someone when it says, for you to do the right thing is white? Right. Right. Well, you know, I think what's going to have to first of all, let's just note the unavoidable logical contradiction in this white supremacist narrative. White supremacists, white supremacists don't go around flailing themselves for racism. South Africa, you know, at the height of apartheid would not have engaged in in you know masochistic torture about we're how horrible were white supremacists by definition the very fact that we have every single mainstream institution in this country railing against its own racism disproves on its face that we are white supremacists right. it's not how you would act but i think that this thing is not going to be stopped until we take on something that's very difficult which is the myth of bias right now the left their, their, their main strategy 
is they can point to existing racial socioeconomic disparities. And the rule now is if there's any disparity in proportional representation, it is by definition the result of bias. Mm. So again, if Google has 3% black workforce, which is what it does, instead of 13%, the only allowable explanation for that is bias. If, if blacks are not represented in venture capital firms, the only allowable explanation is bias. And as long as nobody pushes back against that, they continue to win and we continue to unravel our institutions. Mm. The facts that need to be put out there is that there are other explanations. Above all, the academic skills gap that grows out of the anti-acting white ethic. The fact of the matter is, is that there is huge academic skills gap. The average black eighth, a uh, 12th grader reads at the level of the average white eighth grader. That never closes. The 40% of, of black eighth graders do not even have basic math and reading skills. And, and that continues into college. It means that it is simply, again, a logical impossibility to expect in a colorblind system that you would have 13% black representation in, in institutions with high The 13% of the population. I mean, that's the biggest common sense thing. When people say to me, look at this audience, the majority is white. And I say to them, do you know you live in a majority white con right, country? Right. It'd be weird if you were in Uganda and you said <laughs> that was a majority white. Then I say, whoa, yeah. that, that is novel. It is not weird to go into a room and see majority right. white people. That's indicative of the country that you live in. Right. right? That's indicative of, West, of Western civilization versus if you go over to the continent of Africa. Right. Totally different game. Right. And, and what you're saying is so important. I mean, what we're talking talking about really is is personal responsibility um and and that it, it, people love to blame white people for things. And then because I grew up, you know, in a house that did not value education, where my parents did not check to see if I was doing my homework. Mm -hmm. um, and it was all about whether or not I wanted to read. I happened to fall in love with books, but it could have happened another way where I could have fallen in love with the streets. I could have fallen in love with something else. Yeah. Um, I am aware of what the dynamic is in these black households. You know what I mean? And, and, and that I was bullied for liking books by mm -hmm. other black people, not white people. They right. weren't saying, hey, black girl, you have no right reading that book. It was other black people saying exactly what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. You're acting white. Yeah. When I tested out of classes, when I tested into classes that were all white, right, when we started actually doing um, a, a state testing and you started saying, okay, now you're not just going to be mixed into a group of kids. You got to start going with, you know, kids that have a similar IQ as you. I was accused of acting white for being put into a classroom because I knew the answers on a test. Mm -hmm. I mean, what does that, that toxicity that is in our culture yeah. that is so broken that we can't address because the media keeps telling us it's not our fault when it's plenty our fault. Right. It's plenty our fault for having broken homes where parents are so busy that they can't tend to their children's schoolwork. They can't, you know, you've got your your son uh, raising raising your daughter. Uh, dad's not in the house. We have so much of that going on in the black community and, and a white community that's too fearful to say, you know what? We need you guys. You guys have to be responsible for yourselves. Right. Here's an interesting little tidbit that's also true. The, and, and it's funny. People assume, I guess, Black Lives Matter narrative is like if you just erased white people, black people would just be able to do better. The exact opposite is true. All black narrative, uh, all black uh, neighborhoods uh, fare the worst in terms of crime. Mm -hmm. If you put a black person in a white neighborhood, you know, th they fare better. Same for a black student. Black students fare better in classrooms with all white people than they do if they are put into classrooms with all black people. Why is that? You can't keep blaming white people. There right. has to be something else going on. Right. And it's because we don't value education. Yeah. We, you know, we don't, we just don't value it. I have to say, Candace, 
I get weary at the demand that is made. And again, it's codependent, and I'm not letting whites off the hook here because they encourage it and capitulate. Mm -hmm. But I get weary of the demand to lower standards. You know, the racial preferences, uh, we're getting rid of now SATs, we're getting rid of GREs in graduate school, engineering departments are getting rid of GREs in math to be an engineer. It's, it's just extraordinary because they all have disparate impact. Any kind of academic colorblind standard, it turns out, has a disparate impact on blacks negatively because of that academic skills gap. Why don't you say, I'm going to meet the damn standard? Instead, the demand is always lower the standard to let me in. Mm. Uh, and, and, and again, whites give in and they say, okay, you're right. It would be racist to expect you to have the same academic profile as whites and Asians to be admitted to this school. Therefore, we're going to have over a standard deviation below uh, of, of SATs and GPA to let you in so that we can have our wonderful diversity. And of course, as, as you well know, that, that uh, policy of lowered standards in, say, college admissions produces mismatch. The blacks who were let in under those lowered standards cannot compete as a female wouldn't. This is not about race. It's about preferences. If MIT admits me because it decides it needs more females and I have a 650 on my math SAT on, out of 800, and my peers have 800, I'm going to flounder my first year. I'm going to drop out of freshman calculus. I'm not going to keep up, and I'm going to decide I'm not set out for a STEM field. Same thing with blacks when you admit them in with preferences. Now, those blacks who are admitted on the same standard do perfectly well. All Everybody should be matched to their academic skills level. But instead, nobody's saying meet the damn standard. I have a, a thought experiment. If, if blacks acted like Asians for 10 years in all things related to success, so you had parents that were obsessive about their children's academic work, attending school, not dissing the, not dissing the teacher, not having your back turned, not you know screaming in class, taking your textbook home, studying for a test, not getting involved in gangs, drugs, two-parent families, if after 10 years of that sort of Asian behavior, we still saw racial disparities, at that point, I'm going to start listening to you talking about systemic racism. Mm. But right now, the behavioral disparities are so great, and those it is those disparities which explain these ongoing gaps. And that's why I say we have to take on the myth of bias and say that there are, there are, there are cultural differences and very glaring behavioral differences. If you have a 71 to 73% out of wedlock birth rate in the black community compared to say 16% in the Asian community, game over. Mm -hmm. That's all you need to know. Mm. White privilege consists of this, that whites are still a third as likely to grow up in a single parent household as blacks. If it gets up to 71% for whites, I can guarantee you we're going to see the same level of dysfunction. But right now, that is the white privilege, is that you have not just two parents, but more importantly still, at least among the elites, a culture that expects males to de develop self-control and bourgeois values to find a mate. 
And, and I'll just counter, it's not, that's not white privilege, that's privilege, period. It's I don't privilege. care what, what college, if you come from a two-parent household, exactly. you know, a stable two-parent household, you are privileged. And I, when people try to tell me, you know, that just the color of your skin can disadvantage you. I mean, I was disadvantaged, sure, but it wasn't because of the color of my skin, it was because of decisions that my parents made. Right. You know, my mother didn't graduate high school, right. uh, you know what I mean? And and I didn't come from a stable two-parent household, you know, scenario. So signing up for student loans, not knowing what they meant, didn't ha not having that guidance, that wasn't because of the color color of my skin. Right. You know, do you think that Malia and Sasha Obama um, are, are disadvantaged because of the color of their skin? Apparently, right? yes, do you, right. Do, do yeah, you think right. that her, that Malia Obama and Sasha Obama grew yeah. up in the same way I grew up? And if your answer is no, then you are acknowledging that what we're talking about is not has nothing to do with, with racial differences or racial disparities. Right. There are disparities and there are privileges that are afforded, but it has nothing to do with the color of our skin. You can have the same exact privileges if you make the same the same exact behavioral um, decisions. Exactly. And, and, and that is that is so so important and I just you know I, I beat that drum every single day and I say all the time I I am not fond of what black culture has become and you know it's mm -hmm. disintegrated it disintegrates every decade it gets worse and worse right. um, I consider myself to be a black American from the 1950s 1940s with my grandfather's right. time when they grew up and it was about respect values hard work um, and my grandfather fared better than my father did and he grew up in a time under Jim Crow I mean think about that that's fascinating um, because black culture has shifted um, and Absolutely. we've shifted towards a culture of disrespect and right. that's natural you remove fathers from the home who instills that your your concept of respect and obedience, you know, obedience for authority, right? If you're not doing that in your household because dad's not at home, maybe mom's working two jobs um, and you're now left to your own devices. So you're not going to respect the teachers, which means you're not going to respect the police officers. And that's what, that's what begins shaking um, that public order that is so needed right. for us to maintain a society. And that's what we're getting at today. It is heartbreaking to see photos of these great black Americans from the 30s, 40s, 50s, especially in the entertainment world, whether it's Ella Fitzgerald and Nat King Cole, embracing bourgeois values. They lived under such spiritual, emotional oppression, heart-wrenching, and yet the way they dressed, the way they carried themselves, the way they were willing to participate in a country that was denying them equal opportunity because they still believed in those values of hard work. These are people of unbelievable courage and nobility. And it all went away. There's a fantastic book, uh, The Lost City by Alan Ehrenholt, based on about 1950s Chicago. And it's exactly what you're talking about, Candace, of a respect for authority. This was before we had sort of the corrosion of radical libertarianism. And he looks at three different communities, a suburban community outside of Chicago, a Catholic, white, blue-collar community, and Bronzeville in Chicago. And so this was, again, a period of de facto segregation. But, but Bronzeville had institutions. It had you know, mutual societies for, for insurance, their own newspapers. They believed in living up to those bourgeois ideals and it gave their lives meaning and stability. And that all went away when the civil rights movement in the 60s morphed instantaneously uh, into, into hatred, into power plays, rather than saying, okay, now we are going to, we've been given the opportunity to compete on a, on a one playing field, 
and we're going to do it. Instead, it moved immediately into racial victimology. And I would add this too. You know, we hear about, you say white privilege is not white privilege, it's privilege, you're right, two-parent families. Let's also talk about black privilege. Hmm. You know, it's privilege. Who, who, if you have a child applying to Harvard today, do you want them to be black or white? Listen, I'm, I'm having mixed-race children. They're going to hit black every time. Every time. <laughs> you, don't, you don't even acknowledge your father when you fill out this college no, application. Absolutely not. Yeah. <laughs> Four times greater chance of just, on average, black people admitted to Harvard. And that's true in every single academic institution. I enjoy so many privileges that you can't enjoy. I, I believe <laughs> that. I mean, I, and I'm, because I say I that, people female. get upset. Now, I've got the female, but you've got a little more intersectionality. Yeah, I got, yeah, but, I got a little more going for me. But, okay. but it's true for females as well. Mm-hmm. White male heterosexuals today are doomed. They are doomed. They have no, there is no intersectional box they can. Especially if they're straight. Yeah, heterosexual. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, heterosexual exactly. males, forget it. It's the one thing I would not want to be. You know, yeah. I mean, they, they have to work, uh, you know, not even twice as hard. Quadruple as hard. Right. Um, and it still doesn't matter because at the end of the day, they're going to be called a racist if they, even if they earn their success. Right. Right. But it's, it's the same be, thing for females. I yeah. mean, the idea that females are being discriminated against, give me a break. Whether it's female privilege or black privilege. Right. We live in a quotaized world. Right. And you know what? I will, I will, I will wrap by saying that I believe that, you know, there's a lot of things that need to take place for us to sort of move towards a solution. Um, but I think part of it is white people like you finding a voice mm-hmm. and and just being willing to say it. And I, I get so many emails of, what can I do as a white person? Stop seeing yourself as a white person. It's the truth. Yeah. <laughs> you know, your color doesn't matter. Right. Um, and if you're fearful because terrible things like what we saw in that video happen, uh, you're fearful that you're, you're going to be chased down or somebody's going to say something to you, well, realize that capturing that stuff wakes people up. It's how black people won the civil rights movement, right? Showing the horrible images of how, just exactly how racist the society was. Right. You know, the images of them spraying them down with hoses. That is what woke people up to just how racist and backwards society was. That is going to be the same images. Take your cameras out. Film these people being radical, coming up to you in a restaurant and screaming and shouting you down. Make the world question whether or not this is a movement of peace or whether this is a movement of hate. And I believe it is the latter. Black Lives Matter, in my opinion, yeah. is a hate group. Absolutely. Um, so, Heather, this has been phenomenal. I'm so grateful that you came on today. Uh, we wrap every episode by allowing you to leave a face message for the world. Um, so <laughs> from from your mouth to everybody's ears, because every single person in the entire world watches The Candace Owens Show. Of course. That is true. Of course. Yeah, that is about as true as police brutality. Uh, <laughs> um, and so you're just going to look at this camera, and you're just going to sort of just say what's on your heart and what's on your mind about everything that's going on in two minutes. Ready? Wow. Okay. On your mark, get set, world, I give you Heather McDonald. Well, thank you. It's been an honor to be with Candace today. And I would just say America has to return to a situation of law and order. Get out and vote. Believe in civilization. Do not be guilty. Be grateful for the privileges that you have in coming from a, a civilization that is bequeathed upon you prosperity, freedom, and, 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 the possibility of living up to your greatest potential. Do not accept uh, the justification for riots. Live by ideals that everybody can live by and, and realize your own potential to the greatest. And read great books. Read as much great literature, listen to as much great music as you can. Lift yourself up by beauty and sublimity because there's a lot of it out there. And I will wrap by saying, parent those toddlers. (laughs) Uh (laughs) Thank you guys so much. That's a wrap. Thank you. 
Thank you guys for watching the latest episode of The Candace Owens Show. I hope you guys enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. As many of you guys already know, PragerU is a 501c3 nonprofit organization, which means we need your help to keep all of our content free to the public. Please consider making a tax-deductible donation today. I would really appreciate your support.